according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Philippians chapter 3 tonight, so join me there. Philippians chapter 3, dealing with the heavenly citizenship that we have here in verses 17 through 21, which is the antidote to worldly-mindedness. Uh, the problem is, as we have worldly-minded people everywhere, and uh, when they creep into the church, and when their attitudes start to infect others, then uh, we end up with a big problem, because we have heavenly citizens that are earthly-minded, and uh, you end up with a dysfunction in a local assembly. So Paul's warning them in verses 17 and 18, brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And you don't want to call them enemies because they may be friends, they may be uh, family members, they may be uh, people that are uh, that have been a part of, of a church family for years and years. But by virtue of their new uh, earthly-minded focus, um, they are actually enemies of the cross of Christ, and we have to be clear on that. And it says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And that's the warning that we're dealing with here tonight. So before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His blessing and His faithfulness in, uh, in what we study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have tonight to assemble together. I thank you for this midweek service, Father, that serves as such a, a refuge in the midst of the week. It keeps us from going Sunday to Sunday on a seven-day stretch without assembling together. And this is such a uh, like an oasis in the wilderness, Father. I thank you for it. And I pray for your hand of blessing upon our time tonight as we open the scriptures and study to show ourselves approved. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father, we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the microphone is ready to go, so we can uh, take a few questions tonight, as we like to do on, on Wednesday nights. We'll start with the recording booth, and then we'll uh, take it from there. Okay, I have, uh, I have three really quick questions. Okay. First, uh, John eleven thirty eight. John we eleven thirty eight. Yes, we were talking uh, last week or Sunday about Lazarus dead for four days and why? Mm -hmm. Why? Oh, <laughs> yes. I, in fact, I challenged folks on Sunday to, uh, you know, it, it's curious to me. I don't know why. He doesn't say why, but we can speculate that one one of the um, benefits. To, uh, to having him dead for four days and then coming back is the a fortiori principle that if God can do the greater, he can do the lesser. And since Jesus had already promised that he was going to rise on the third day, then bringing Lazarus back on the fourth day it should have been you know, vivid testimony that he's able to do such things. And so uh, when his disciples saw the return of Lazarus after four days, and it's curious that, that Thomas is mentioned in that chapter too as being one that's specifically doubting and of course he gets that label on his name as Doubting Thomas. But 
Um, you know, when you read that in John chapter 11 and then he, Jesus brings Lazarus back on the fourth day, that, uh, that should be just the guarantee that, hey, Jesus will rise on the third day and, uh, and he can certainly handle that. So that's my suspicion. And, and my opinion is just as good as anybody else's because it's all opinions anyway. We don't have a verse that says this is why that he was in the grave for four days. Did you come up with something better? No, I did not. Oh, okay. Um, related to that question there, um, do you believe that he actually went to heaven or do you believe that he was just in a plane in between? Or Well, yeah, I don't believe in purgatory or anything in between. There's no limbo or any, anything like that. I believe well, that as Scripture says, sleeping. Well, Abraham's bosom would have been where he would have gone as an Old Testament believer and would have immediately started receiving the comfort and the fellowship with, with the saints in Abraham's bosom. Um, and, so, and, and I think because of the weeping, that's, that's what I tend to conclude. Uh, there is, though, uh, an argument that can be made for the fact that when God knew in his foreknowledge that he was going to bring him back after four days, that rather than rather than take him to conscious bliss in, in Abraham's bosom in paradise, that he actually put him to soul sleep. And uh, because uh, Jesus does say earlier in that chapter, you know, Lazarus is asleep. And, um, but I, I think that's a weaker argument. Sleep is usually a metaphor for physical death anyway. And so I think that the weeping of Jesus was his recognition that he's going to bring Lazarus back from, from his place of comfort and that he was going to have to return to a body of sin that's the thing. He's free from his body of sin. And, uh, and the Lord put him back into that. And so that's, I think that's the reason for the weeping. Okay, because I believe you had taught it the other way before, and that's why I was I might curious have. which way you were Yeah, you were the Life of now. Christ series, I might have spoken of him as basically being put into a four-day sleep, um, because that is the other view on that. Okay, my other question goes to Genesis 4, uh, 3. Genesis 4, 3. Yes. Now, here we have, uh, you know, Cain is actually speaking to the Lord. Yes. And he talks with him, but he's an unbeliever. Correct. Is he a, he's an unbeliever because uh, he doesn't believe that there's going to be salvation? I mean, he sees the Lord right there, but I guess he's denying him. Well, he's an unbeliever because he was born to, unbelie- to uh, you know, fallen parents, and that's the thing. When Adam and Eve fell, uh, they then, although they were saved by grace through faith, still they are fallen humanity in Adam that produces fallen humanity in Adam. And uh, Cain and Abel sinned when Adam sinned, when you and I sinned. We're, we're all, the total depravity of the human race would have made them sinners in need of salvation at physical birth. And so uh, then the fact that the Lord is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the Lord is on hand, the Lord is ta- uh, talking with them, is, uh, is, is interesting because you wonder how, uh, how much provision can there be and still have rebels hate it and, and reject the gospel. And, and it's a good preview for the millennium, by the way, when you've got perfect environment, perfect government, and Jesus Christ reigning on the throne in Jerusalem and, and the lion is lying down with the lamb and the, the curse of Noah is, is, is undone and, and everything is perfect millennial conditions and we still have a whole swath of unbelievers that hate, that hate Jesus. So uh, I'm not, it's not exactly shocking that Cain would, would still be an unbeliever. We take this, by the way, based on New Testament commentary because it's kind of sketchy here in Genesis 4. But uh, we are told in the New Testament that Cain was of the evil one and he slew his brother. And so that's an expression that, that identifies him clearly as an unbeliever. 
And then uh, we're also told in Hebrews 11 that Abel brought his sacrifice by faith. And there's no mention of faith on, on uh, Cain's part because without faith it's impossible to please God. It would just be so hard to think you're speaking with the Lord and the Lord actually say, letting him know, you know, sin is crouching at your door. Well, Judas Iscariot spoke with the Lord, ate with the Lord, dipped his hand in the dip with the Lord, and, and was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's an unbeliever that received the Holy Spirit, was Judas Iscariot in his apostolic ministry. And he had authority to cast out demons, and he never cast out Satan out of himself. <laughs> he was, that's, that's, that's something else, too, if you look at Judas Iscariot in the gospel record. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. All righty, other questions tonight? Those are all excellent. Okay, let's come up front here to... You can do your theory? Okay, we'll get your theory, and then we'll go to Mary Ellen next. Okay, Mary Ellen, we'll go Mary Ellen, and then we'll get your theory. Thank you. Is this your four-day theory? Okay. Is it true that Adam and Eve never repented of their sin before they died? Some would claim that, uh, but I don't accept that. I think, it's, I think that when they accepted the clothing of the animal skins in Genesis 3, that they were submitting to... The, the will of God for the covering of their nakedness. In other words, they, they were confessing at that point that the, uh, the leaves were, were no good, that they couldn't cover their own nakedness with their own fig leaves. And so when the Lord killed that, the animals to clothe them with the animal skins, that they accepted the clothing of the Lord. They allowed Him to dress them. And, and so I believe that indicates that they were repenting and, and accepting his, his salvation by grace through faith. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah. Now in that case with uh, Judas, okay, uh, when he betrayed the Lord, okay, mm -hmm. when he went to Sarah, the Pharisees and threw his money down, and they want no part of it anymore. Mm -hmm. Would that be his confession of repentance? Would that be part of his repentance or what? It could be thought that way, but the scripture says that it was not. That uh, he had regret, but he did not have repentance. And that's, I love that passage though, because uh, that's a great verse to show people that want to confuse regret with repentance. There's a lot of sinning human beings that have tons of regret, and yet there's no repentance. And, that, and it's a big, big difference. The Greek is metanoeo for repentance and metamelamai for regret. And it's very clear that Judas Iscariot had regret, but he had no repentance. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. All right, now we can cross the aisle and come up with a four-day theory here. So not that I'm going to compete with you on this. Oh, no, I'm going to believe whatever you say. <laughs> Just that that way, Scripture, it, nobody could confuse Scripture and say, oh, well, that guy was already, um, he was already risen. So, okay. All the prophecies say three days. He'll be, build the temple in three days. He'll be resurrected in three days. He'll come back in three days. Everything's mm -hmm. about three days. And Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three, three days. days. Yeah. So they, he, so I think that they did intentionally did the four days so that it wouldn't be confused, so that no one could say, oh. You're well, confusing Jesus with Lazarus. And whatever. Okay, yeah. I like it. Because you know how those critics are. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. All right, excellent. Any other questions tonight? All right, Al Dowdy, back row over there. On the far left. Only positionally. <laughs> Another comment about the four days. I'm wondering if it's because after four days, uh, the de decomposition and all the uh, 
all that goes on after a person's dead, mm -hmm. um, the, it would make it more remarkable to uh, walk out of the grave completely whole. Because uh, after four days, it's like, okay. Mm. Uh, maybe, you know, after a week, after a thousand years. I mean, I think dead is dead. Even on day one to bring a dead guy back to life is, is, is a miracle. But no, I, I see what you're saying. That, that could be. By the way, there's a gospel quartet song that uh, is sung by, um, who sings that? It's called My Name is Lazarus. It's a good song. I recommend it if, uh, if you can come across that. Yeah, I think you'll like that. All right, well then let's go to Philippians. Thank you, Christopher. Appreciate you running the microphone. He wasn't mostly dead, that's right. Not a princess bride mostly dead thing. I'm trying to remember who sings the song, My Name is Lazarus. It's a, you'll find it, okay. It's a, it's a good gospel quartet song and it's about the life of Jesus and it's about different people that they were complaining. I'm sorry? Greater vision, thank you. Yeah, yeah, greater vision. And uh, don't listen to it now, wait till church is over. In fact, go home and watch it at home. But everybody has a criticism. Everybody has a criticism about the Lord or about other people and about different things. And, uh, and, and they're skeptical about what the Lord can do for the man born blind or the man that's a cripple being lowered down through the roof and things like that. And uh, anyway, it's, it's a good song. All right. Philippians chapter 3, brethren, join in following my example. Become a fellow mimic with me. Brethren, join in becoming a fellow mimic with me. I really think that's the best way to translate this because um, it is a verb of becoming. It is not a verb of copying. It is a verb of becoming. You want to become a mimic. You want to become a co-mimic, a fellow mimic with Paul. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Observe other co-mimics with them and with Paul and following the right example of walking with the Lord. Because there's the wrong example. And so this is what we've been dealing with related to this. Our citizenship is in heaven. First of all, uh, imitations and patterns. This has been a focal point of Paul's ministry ever since the get-go. First Thessalonians was the first book he ever wrote. Well, no, Galatians was the first book that he wrote. But First Thessalonians is very early, and uh, in there you have the imitation principle that's being made very clear, as well as Second Thessalonians, First um, Corinthians, uh, Philippians, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. In all of these, we have the impact of having a role model and setting that role model. If you're in leadership, you're expected to set that role model. Timothy was told to let no one look down on his youthfulness, but rather prove to be an example of Christ. And so we have the passages there. This too had an impact in Peter's life when he tells the elders there to set the example and not lord it over those allotted to their charge, but prove to be examples to the flock. And so um, those, are, those are important studies. Secondly, the importance of right patterns becomes critical in view of the wrong patterns that are all too frequently imitated. And this is why I like, sometimes I like to say peer pressure works both ways or you know, something like that. There's, there, you can have good peer pressure, which you should be pursuing, as opposed to the bad peer, peer pressure, which you should be avoiding. Because that wrong example, that wrong example will actually embolden you to follow the bad example because you're 
you're so subjective, and we get so subjective looking at people, and we think, well, you know, so-and-so's doing this, and he seems okay with it, maybe I can go with it too, and, and, and so forth. And so that wrong example, and you end up with these worldly-minded people, and, and before you know it, it's spread like leaven throughout the entire congregation. And that's why you want to observe the right example and be on guard against the wrong example. And there's not just a few of them either. It says there are many, many more uh, of the wrong walkers than we want to admit. And that's why you have to warn about it again and again and again. And uh, I think that one of the benefits of having those frequent warnings every so often, you know, bring it up every now and then, is because in the meantime, since the last time you brought it up, in the meantime, perhaps there have been additional Sadly, additional believers that have uh, drifted to that side of things and they've become worldly minded and they've started to exalt their own appetites in, into an idolatry status. And uh, we'll talk about that tonight. What does it mean to have your belly as your idol or whose God is their appetite and, uh, and aspects there? Because there's many appetites that we're all subject to and, uh, and any, any of them or all of them can be turned into, uh, can be turned into idols. This telling makes Paul cry as he says, I tell you now even weeping. That's verse 18. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping. See, he never gets tired of warning and even if it means that it hurts to tell it this time around, um, I, I suspect he had received word about a particular person and it just broke his heart. And uh, so he had to go back over the same ground again and remind them again and, and uh, to give this warning again brought him to tears. And uh, Paul was no stranger to tears and uh, far from being a weak sister actually Paul had a spiritual sympathy comparable to Jesus. And there were times that Jesus wept as per we were talking about John eleven thirty five earlier. And then of course uh, he l- wept over Jerusalem. <laughs> he had a forerunner that said behold the Christ and uh, and when he had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem it was only the children singing Hosanna and the religious leaders were trying to get them to shut up and, and really the whole murder plot was, was uh, underway to, to have him executed. So um, no wonder he wept over Jerusalem. The kingdom it was no longer at hand. The kingdom was very much delayed and uh, the kingdom had been uh, reoriented into a mystery state uh, whereby uh, we still have it to this day. We still have the mystery state of the kingdom until such time as the king returns. And so he wept over Jerusalem. And, and this is what it's about. I hope we have, um, when you see those examples of Paul in Acts 20 and 2 Corinthians and Philippians 3, you know, it's not like he was constantly crying in every church he ever went to. Uh, there's no record that he cried in Galatians or that he cried in, in uh, some of these other places. But there were significant examples of it that you realize that, uh, that it's tough. And he talked about uh, being a nursing mom and he talked about being a tough father and he uses family language in, uh, in 1 Thessalonians especially. And uh, that's just the nature of ministry. When he says, who is, who is led into sin without my intense concern, that, uh, that drives the point home. That recognizes that, that watching sheep who should know better uh, do things they know are wrong, it just it hurts because you taught them the truth, they know the truth, and they've gone out and done something else in opposition to the truth. And you think, Man, there's just no reason for that other than hardness of heart and carnality and you know that the, the hand of God's judgment is going to come upon them even if, uh, even if it hurts to watch it happen. So we dealt with that under subpoint B. Now uh, related to the enemies, 
These are declared enemies of the cross of Christ. And I've already answered a question that some people struggle with. The commentaries spend pages after pages after pages about this that um, arguing about whether these enemies in verse uh, 18 if they're the same as the dogs that started the chapter, right? Because we had beware the dogs, beware the evil workers, beware the false circumcision. And we talked about the opposition that was there that they were supposed to be aware of uh, but we, we really, we looked at the verb tenses and some of the, the syntax of those passages as if they were being warned against something that had not yet made its way there. That the, the, the Judaizers, the Jewish uh, religious legalists, uh, that's, that's who the, the dogs were, the evil workers and the false circumcision. Uh, they were not yet on the scene or certainly not in large numbers. There weren't enough Jewish people in Philippi to have a synagogue and, and probably they were all expelled from Philippi anyway when Caesar had expelled them from Rome. So I believe that the adversaries early in the chapter were, were uh, potential Jewish legalists that, uh, that may be on their way. But the, the enemies at the end of the chapter, they're there. They're on the ground. They are very active in Philippi and, uh, and they are uh, there to observe and to be on guard against. So we view them as separate. Uh, it also gets argued, well, maybe they're, maybe they're believers, maybe they're not believers and try to pin that down. It's not always easy to do. Uh, are they regenerate? My answer is no. Um, and so if you're listening to this MP3 file in 15 years from now and uh, you say that Pastor Bob answered no in uh, 2008, I, I have complete liberty to change my mind in the next 15 years if greater study uh, leads me to a better conclusion. Um, nevertheless, uh, their end is destruction. That's what I'm focusing in on because apaleia is not our destiny. Apaleia is not our end. It's not our telos. And so we may, we may face discipline. We may face some judgment, uh, but we don't face destruction. Destruction is the heritage of the unbeliever. It's a heritage of the, of the lost. Uh, God sent His Son so that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. That's this term. That's the verb form of, of apaleia. That's apalumi is the verb form. And so, no, we are not headed for destruction. We are headed for life. We have life now. So whose end is destruction. And when I focus on that and the 18 uses of it in the New Testament, I don't see a destruction application, uh, not as an end for, uh, for believers in, uh, in the church age. So uh, they are not saved. I'm con- I conclude that they are not saved. But even though they're not saved, their attitudes still rub off on those who are. And that's the problem is that their attitudes can be emulated and the, the, the bad example they set can be imitated by people who are uh, born again and regenerate. So that becomes a struggle as well. So even though their end is destruction, and that's, uh, that's not for us, nevertheless, their mindset can be imitated by those whose end is not destruction. Their mindset can be imitated by those whose end is not destruction. And another passage that clearly contrasts destruction with life is this text here in Matthew 7 that speaks about the narrow gate and the, and the broad gate, right? We talk about the straight and narrow. And I think all too often it gets preached on an experiential basis that the straight and narrow is just how to, how to be a good moral Christian, how to be, uh, how to be you know, goody two-shoes and on the right road and whatever. We call that the straight and narrow. You know, you're going to walk the straight and narrow, which means uh, you're kind of, 
you know, a stick in the mud and no fun at parties and you're just... Uh, and and that's, the, that's the attitude that unbelievers like to tag us with, probably because they're mocking us based on Matthew chapter 7. But you no, know, when I see the gate and the fact that the imperative is to enter, it's the stress is the entrance. The stress is, is on the inception of a, of a path. And so uh, the gate is not the entirety of a path. The gate is the portal that puts you on that path, beyond which, of course, you're on the path that you're on. So going through the gate of the straight and narrow, that I believe represents salvation. And uh, you have to enter by grace through faith. And, and there's few that find it. Uh, but broad is the path that leads to destruction. And many there are that go there too. The, the bulk of humanity is unregenerate and on the road to hell. And that's the, that's the nature of it. So, um, and then once you're through that gate, you're not going to switch gates or switch sides or whatever. Remember, you, can't, you don't lose salvation. No one can ever lose salvation and decide to take to take the other gate. All right. So um, with that, in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, we, re- we realize that when we talk about uh, there are those whose end is destruction, there are those whose end is eternal life, and even though your end is eternal life and you have eternal security and you cannot lose your salvation under any circumstances, you still can imitate the other side. And you can become a mimic of, uh, of the other side. And that's, uh, that's what this passage is warning us about. And so really there's three things that are said here in Philippians about these, uh, these uh, people. First of all, uh, their end is destruction. It says, whose God is their appetite. So the first thing is they have turned their personal appetites into idolatry. They have turned their personal appetites into idolatry. And when you think of what you can have for an appetite, it's not just gluttony, it's not drunkenness, it's more than that. It's more than any particular appetite. And it, it can include that. You can, you can make food your idol. You can make any pleasure. That's the thing. And so we have, we have food appetites, alcohol appetites, sexual appetites. We can have any number of other appetites. There's personality appetites, entertainment appetites. There's uh, anything. If you think about it, the word appetite refers to something that you find uh, tasty, right? Or tasteful. And the fact is, is that on a, on a sensual basis, there are things that we all uh, develop a taste for. <coughs> and this is not just biblically speaking. We're talking in the secular realm. Why is it that um, you know, a person is, is said to have a certain taste for music? And why do we use the word taste for music? Because it refers to an appetite. And it refers to a preference, see, and for some people, their taste is for uh, country western music, or their taste is for uh, classical music, or they developed a taste for for rap music, or whatever it might be. Okay, and the thing about it is, is you can develop a taste over time, even when maybe it was formerly distasteful, but then later on, you you get more exposure to it. Later on, you know, you know, you take the try it bite that mom makes you take. And then the, the try-it bite wasn't as bad as you remembered. And then the, the next try-it bite was a little bit better. And the next thing you know, you've had so many try-it bites, now you're going back for seconds and, and it tastes pretty good now. And you've developed a taste for Brussels sprouts or, or lima beans or whatever it is that you didn't have the taste for before. Or maybe now you have a taste for classical music that always used to put you to sleep before, but now you can stay awake long enough to actually understand some of the different movements that are happening in the course of the, of the opera. Or you develop a, t- a different kind of taste. Now think about it. Anything that, 
that appeals to aesthetics, okay? And this is why God is so marvelous, because He didn't have to create us with this, right? You know, we could have been goats with no aesthetics of any kind. We just eat grass and who cares? But no, we have appetites and tastes and preferences and and, uh, appreciations, see? And so food, alcohol, sex, uh, entertainment, music, uh, art. Think about it for those that have a real taste and appreciation for different kinds of art, the fine arts and, and paintings and sculptures and whatnot. Okay? All of these can be defined as appetites. And because of that, all of these can become idolatrous. We can go, we can be so devoted to a, a life pursuit or to a passion that we've actually substituted the, uh, the uh, incorruptible God for a corruptible uh, appetite, as it were. And so this, uh, this gets warned about here. Alright, some passages I think that go well with this. And of course Philippians 3.19 uh, is the main passage that addresses all three of these. But what does it say in Romans? Romans 16 and uh, verses 17 and 18 here. Romans 16, 17. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. All right? Keep an eye out on these guys. Watch them and watch them close. Uh, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. That's our, that's our term. That's the concept. And so if you're a slave of something, then you've idolized it. You've turned it into your God. You've turned it into your master. And so you serve it. You sacrifice other things for it. You're devoted to it. Or you're enslaved to it. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Because uh, when it comes down to it, misery loves company. And no idolater wants to be uh, a solo practitioner. Right? Idolaters always want to have more idolaters around. And it's, uh, I don't know what satanic motivation drives that or the nature of fallen humanity, but it just, it's remarkable to me. Um, you know, cult leaders are never content to be solo, you know, uh, hermits. They always want to have a whole cult following in, in uh, things that they're doing there. Anyway, that's uh, the thing here. So they are slaves of their own appetites and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. That's why, having been taught, we're not unsuspecting anymore. <laughs> we can see it when it's happening. And uh, we're warned to say, no, we're not going to go down that path. Also, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 4. 2 Timothy 3, 4. The... Um, Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. And uh, the following verses are very descriptive of, of our culture today. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, un, uh, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, and how now we get to it. Really, it kind of serves as a summary of everything in, that preceded it. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know, this is where you, uh, an unbeliever or a carnal believer, they take 
hedonism and they turn it into a, a religion, <laughs> right? They take hedonism, which is pretty common for a lot of carnal people, you know, do what makes you feel good, do what makes you happy, do whatever. Um, find some kind of an escapism to, to you know, forget about the terrible things you don't want to think about. Um, so hedonism is, is common to, to carnality, but when you raise it to an art form or when you raise it to a religious uh, experience by, by turning it into an idol, now all of a sudden you become, uh, when we're commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, instead they're loving their belly. They're loving their pleasure. The thing that, uh, that gives them uh, you know, whatever kind of thrill or whatever kind of um, you know, charge that they're getting out of this, uh, this sin. And so uh, avoid such men as these. And curious, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. How in the world do they have this hedonism idolatry and still view it as godliness? And yet they do. Avoid such men as these. And it goes on, among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. So they find a a target-rich environment to spread their idolatry. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So turning personal appetites into idolatry. And you know, you can ask yourself this with anything. You can ask yourself this. It's useful, for example, if you think you have a, a drinking problem, you just ask yourself, well, who calls the shots? You know, do I control this or does it control me? How does it work? You know, and uh, can, can I walk away from it tomorrow and never have an, another drink ever again? Or am I kind of a slave to it these days? And do I need to start to consider if I have a, if I have a problem here? And, and you ask yourself that in anything, uh, not just a chemical dependency, but anything if you think in fact that it's controlling you. You think in fact that you find yourself making decisions you don't want to make but this idol wants you to make it so you do it anyway and it's, uh, it's a sad thing when it comes down to that. When an appetite turns into your God. Turns into your God. Okay? And uh, ooh, can I get to the real big one? Sports. <laughs> An appetite for sports, an appetite for, you know, football, college football, basketball, baseball, all of the above. Uh, any team from Boston, right? <laughs> any team from Seattle, or whatever the case may be. Because you get people. Let's let's be honest. They're not fans. They're fanatics. They are they are fiercely loyal. I mean, they'll duke it out with somebody in the you know, really, you know. It's more than a friendly athletic competition at that point. And uh, what are you doing? And you live and you die by it and you follow it and, and you end up, let's face it, they've got an entire liturgical calendar with a high holy season. Where we're Right now this is baseball's high holy season right now in the World Series. And so this is it. This is like the, on the liturgical calendar of, of, of baseball and the baseball idolatry. And same thing, what happens? We, we take the greatest heroes and we uh, we call it the Pantheon. We, put, we induct them into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And so they get to join the Pantheon in Cooperstown. Those terms aren't accidental. There's a reason why they're used. All right? And so, yeah, there's sports idolatry, okay? There's Scrabble idolatry. There's all kinds of idolatry. And so you ask yourself, you know, because truly, if this becomes life-consuming and you give yourself over to it, you'll be absorbed. You will be completely absorbed in, uh, in such things. All right, so that's the first characteristic. Second characteristic, turning shameful things into celebrations. 
turning shameful things into celebrations. And that's how I'm expressing it. But in Philippians 3, it's expressed this way, whose glory is in their shame. That's the second description. The first one, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. But then whose glory is in their shame. Something that should be shameful. Something that ought not be spoken. You know, the, the things that are, that are uh, shameful that God calls abominations, uh, not only do we not practice them, but we don't think about them, we don't mention them, we don't, uh, they're not considered uh, appropriate topics for, for discussion uh, related to that. And, and the Bible's clear, things that ought not be spoken, see. And yet uh, it seems that our culture has turned those into the, the very centerpiece of, of, uh, of discussion, right? They get center stage in social media, they get, they get uh, uh, breaking news on the, in the uh, news coverage. And they should be shameful things, and yet they're turned into celebrations whose glory is in their shame. And, uh, and let's face it, that's what every pride parade is about. It's uh, they're gonna they're gonna march in pride rather than shame, because the Bible says it's shameful, but the their flesh and the world says it's great, and if you call it shameful, then you're a hater, and uh, it then becomes a, a for a, basically a political force to try to uh, try to influence others. All right, Romans one twenty eight through thirty two, and we know Romans one is a is a. a spectacle, a display of, of uh, Gentile depravity. And uh, beyond the depravity for what it is, then comes the enslaving consequences, I think, that we see how it gets intensified. And uh, when, you, when you track through this chapter and you see all the things, starting in verse 18, how the wrath of God is presently revealed and all these things about uh, just open rebellion against the Lord God of creation. And in the process of this, you'll notice there's giving over. There's a giving over in verse 24 in the lust of their hearts um, to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And then in verse 24, there's another giving over. God gave them over to degrading passages, uh, uh, passions. All right, and that addresses that. So we've got lesbianism and, and homosexuality here. And then in verse 28, another giving over. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over. Now this third giving over seems to be the, the no turning back last straw. That with the first giving over they had a repentance opportunity and then a second giving over a repentance opportunity. But now this third one appears to be the last, uh, the last deal. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And now that the mind is depraved, all bets are off. Uh, even subhuman, unhuman, uh, animalistic, uh, just terrible, terrible demoniac things that, that uh, aren't even normal sins uh, that just get pursued at this point. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. You know, the list of, of thou shalt nots is too short, let's invent a few more. Let's, uh, let's get creative in some new ways we can sin. And then, uh, and then we can taunt God to say, well, you never wrote that I couldn't do that, you know, because uh, you were so inventive 
about your, uh, about your evil. Um, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And here we get to it. Celebrating it. Demanding acceptance. Although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And that's where we get to the issue here, that hearty approval, that demand of celebration, that demand of, of, uh, of acceptance and approbation. And this is the culture we live in. This is where we've gone in the last 20 years, the last 30 years, whereby it used to be tolerance was kind of live and let live, you know, don't, don't intrude into their private business and, and uh, we'll, just, we'll just kind of back off and you know, don't ask, don't tell, leave it alone. Oh, it's not that anymore. Tolerance is not live and let live. Tolerance is now mandated acceptance. You will approve of what we're doing. You will bake our cake. You will, dem- you will decorate it. You will participate in our weddings. You will do this. And, uh, and if you don't, then you're going to court and we're going to ruin you. That's the, uh, that's the extent that they've carried it to. So, uh, yes, Romans one thirty two is is on full display at this point. And it really becomes taunting. It becomes daring and self-willed. It becomes to the point they know that it's an abomination to God and worthy of death. And so that's why they're doing it. And that's why they're doing it as much as they can in, uh, in all these ways. Second Peter 2.13 This is another chapter where I tell you commentaries and journals and articles page after page after page has really really gone to these false teachers and and debated whether they're saved or not for these be believers can a believer plunge into this kind of darkness and um, again I think that I can prove that these are actually unbelievers but their activity can be emulated and imitated by believers and so they have to be warned against and and dealt with and uh Verse 13 is the key verse that we're headed for. Again, I'm tempted to read the whole chapter, but um, we were here this morning too for that matter. Um, Calvinists like to point to verse 1 and explain it in different ways. Uh, They secretly introduced destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them. Now if they are purchased by the master, what does that tell you? Well, doesn't tell you anything if you believe in unlimited atonement because he, he, he purchased the redemption for all of humanity, see. And so um, it's, only, it's only the Calvinist that can really struggle with it. If you're not a Calvinist, if you believe in unlimited atonement, then Jesus Christ died on the cross for every human being in the world. And so it's not a problem whether they're saved or lost, they're still denying the master who bought them. Um, but if you're a Calvinist and you accept that Jesus only died for the elect, now you've got more problems in this chapter because now you're looking at these people that your theology demands must be saved and yet they are headed for destruction and um, which your theology says can't be true because uh, you have the uh, irresistible grace and the uh, perseverance of the saints. <clears throat> so beyond all that, I don't think they're saved but I don't think it matters really because their, their example can ruin a believer in any event. So in verse 12 we find out that uh, these like unreasoning animals as creatures of instinct 
born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. All right, what's the purpose of an animal? Why does God put animals on this earth? To be captured and killed. That's right, yeah. They are creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. And if we don't capture them and eat them, somebody else will capture them and eat them. It's called the food chain. That's what animals do. All right? And if you're an animal of some sort, you are on that food chain somewhere. And even if you are an apex predator and you have no natural enemies, there's always mankind that will hunt you down. And that's the design, all right? Uh, and, but the sad thing is, is the, the darkened mind that's involved in, in, uh, in this religion and in this uh, rebellion, they're, they've, um, they're actually living in defiance of their image of God humanity. And they're given over under, I think, under demonism and other sin influences. I think they become animalistic in their, uh, in their rebellion. And so uh, at this point, what can you do? What do you do with a rabid dog? You know, are you going to reform him? Are you going to send him to reform school? What are you going to do? No, you put the thing down is what you do. Captured and killed. So um, reviling where they have no knowledge will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. And you just write it off with, with a, you know, hey, it's the cost of doing business. You know, it's what I do. This is the price I pay. And if, uh, if there are certain diseases that come along, well, hey, it's cost of doing business. Um, that's all a part of having fun. And if there's uh, jail sentences that come along because of, well, hey, you know, it's the price I pay. It's just the cost of doing business. It's the wages of doing wrong. And I'm okay with that. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They counted a pleasure. What other people are embarrassed about, what other people try to stay hidden, what other people try to just kind of do in the dark or at night, uh, these guys are so flagrant, they're right out there in the open all day, every day, broad daylight, again, in your face, demanding acceptance. They count it a pleasure. In fact, it makes it a little more exciting to throw it in your face and to do it that openly, to revel in the day. There are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Not happy to be alone in this, they want to rope you into it. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. You know, is, is, it, is it physically possible to sin 24 hours a day? You've got to sleep sometime during which you're dreaming about the next day and the more sins that you can keep on doing. Enticing unstable souls. Having a heart trained in greed. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So we talk about that. The cost of doing business and the wages of unrighteousness. And, uh, and there they get it. So they're turning shameful things into celebrations. Jude 13. Jude is a parallel to Second Peter chapter 2, so it's not shocking that uh, we have a parallel to this. Uh, verse 10, these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animal. That's the nature. We are in the image of God. We should be thinking. We're to love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And uh, as, as Robbie Zacharias says, let my people think. And the moment we surrender our thinking to animalistic instinct, uh, man, we are off the rails. We are in such darkness and uh, pursuing the, the course this passage is talking about here. 
like unreasoning animals these, uh, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them! They've gone the way of Cain. For pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. You know, you think, why does this crowd want to hang out with us? Because they're hunting their next victims. This is where they love to hunt. Caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame-like foam. You know, ha-ha, look at me, ha-ha, look at me. And here's more foam and here's more shame. And it's like you can't shame these people. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Again, their end is destruction. I think that's, uh, that's conclusive. So they turn their personal appetites into idolatry. They turn shameful things into celebrations. And then thirdly, they turn off their spiritual eyes if they ever had them. And they keep their earthly eyes fixed on earthly things. See, I don't think the unbelievers ever had spiritual eyes. But the thing is, when we start imitating them, we have the eyes to see and we stop using them. We have the ears to hear and we stop using them. Keeping earthly eyes fixed on earthly things. Matthew 16, 23, Romans 8, 5 through 7, Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Philippians 2, 19, 3, 19 says, who set their minds on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, we're told. So why are we fixated on the earthly things? Why do we uh, rise and fall? Set their mind on earthly things. I mean, to be fixated on something. To be so firm and so set that you can't get your mind off that track. You're just locked in on it. And it's curious. You know, I think we see this thing politically in our, in our uh, news coverage and different things that happen. There's a certain segment of our population to whom government is everything. It's their God. It's their be-all, end-all. And... Uh, <laughs> At the moment, when their God is a bit impotent and they're frustrated and they're, man, they get ferocious at trying to, trying to put their God back on, on His throne. And, uh, you know, when you're dealing with religious zealots like that, uh, just be aware. It can get dangerous very quickly. And, uh, and in particular, there's a track record. I think the whole 20th century exhibits uh, the consequences of defying totalitarianism. And we better be uh, aware of that too. All right, so uh, they keep their minds, they set their minds on earthly things for our citizenship is in heaven and that's where our mind should be set. So Matthew 16, 23. Anybody quote it from memory? You knew where I was headed before I even turned there? Matthew 16, 23. Remember Matthew 16, this is the great, uh, Peter went from hero to goat in, in one paragraph. I mean, just like that. You know, who do the people think I am? And who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You know, all these great praise for Satan. And then in the very next paragraph, get thee behind me, Satan. Right? So Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. 
Scripture must be fulfilled. And he begins to teach them from all the prophets that this is what was going to happen. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You know how evil that is? He's calling Jesus a liar. He's calling Scripture a lie. Because Scripture said that he was going to be rejected. You know, Peter doesn't care. You know, throw away the whole Old Testament. I don't care. I'm not going to let this happen. How many of us do that same thing? Throw away the whole Bible. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to do this. Well, the whole Bible says this. Are you going to live in contrary, contrary to the Scriptures? You calling Jesus a liar? Jesus said he was going to die and be raised on the third day. Peter said, nope, right? Over my dead body. God forbid it, Lord. And he invokes the name of God in his denial. God forbid it, Lord. Wow. This shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to him, so the Lord said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, adversary. There are many enemies of whom I've often told you and tell you now even weeping. Satan is a, is a proper name, but the meaning is adversary, enemy. And at this moment, Peter is an enemy. You are a stumbling block to me. Not only is he an enemy, but there's a possibility that the Lord's uh, you know, fondness of Peter and so forth, somebody close to you starts uh, spreading his earthly mindedness around. Is that a risk? Jesus said he was a stumbling block. For you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And that means, according to Philippians 3, you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. So this is, uh, this is a, just a perfect parallel there to what we're looking at. And if it could happen to Peter, who, uh, who could this not happen to? All of us, we're all vulnerable. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Any one of us, any believer in the church age is vulnerable to getting your eyes off of heaven getting your eyes on earth, getting your eyes on the things below, and getting so wrapped up in these things that uh, you just lose, lose all sight of the spiritual realities. Romans 8, 5 through 7. Here's our beautiful position, and sadly, we don't match our experience to our position. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is our beautiful estate of being saved. And the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So, man, we have this powerful position. Why don't we walk that way? So the requirements of law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So this is our position. We should walk this way. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So choose you this day whom you will serve. Set your mind where it needs to be, on the things above, according to the Holy Spirit, not the things of the flesh. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. So if you insist on being earthly minded, then you're setting your mind on the things below. You're setting your mind on the flesh not the spirit, not life, not things above. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. That's why Paul says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their thinking is hostile to God's thinking. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I, mean, I don't know how more blunt you can get. 
when you're carnal, when you're out of fellowship, forget your prayer life, forget anything except confessing your sins and being restored to fellowship. The only thing God's going to listen to is your confession. Until then, you can weep, you can cry, you can moan, you can, you can get real loud, you can do all these things. But if you're carnal, He's not listening. All He's waiting to hear is your confession. Then He can restore you to, faith, to uh, forgiveness. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, but we must confess. That's the program. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, Therefore, since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. If you were at our baptism service a couple Saturdays ago, you heard this. Or if you've ever been to any baptism service that I've taken part in, these are the verses we recite when the baptism candidate comes up out of the water. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Continuous action, keep seeking. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So fix your thinking there. Set your mind there. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And so uh, this is the danger. If you're, if you're imitating the wrong crowd, this very quickly becomes your mindset. You're going to find that you're carnal, that you're uh, walking according to the flesh, that your focus is on the things below. You're turning an appetite of some sort into, into an idol, into your God. And, uh, and you, uh, you're joining in some celebrations you should not be joining into. And uh, man, that's a dangerous road because you know, from, from one day you're celebrating somebody else's perversion, the next day you're celebrating your own perversion and, and just goes, uh, goes downhill from there. All right. The antidote to earthly mindedness is our heavenly citizenship and imminent homecoming via the rapture of the church. The antidote to earthly mindedness. The best thing to keep you from being earthly minded is the reminder that that trumpet can sound today. Here, there, or in the air. Let's remember that we might be with the Lord today. So the antidote to earthly mindedness is our heavenly citizenship and imminent homecoming via the rapture of the church. And so we'll come back on Sunday and we'll look at citizenship and rapture, verses 20 and 21. But it's an antidote to earthly mindedness. We'll deal with that on Sunday. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your truth, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. I pray that we would uh, search these scriptures and digest this truth, that it would become very real to each one of us, not just uh, on an objective reality basis, but also on a subjective realization. That, Father, uh, the, the, uh, the truth of this would be lived out in how we think and how we act and what we do. And, Father, um, I pray that we can observe the right examples and the wrong examples everywhere they are, all around us, and, uh, and be on guard, Father, so that those negative uh, things to our detriment don't rub off. Father, bad company corrupts good morals. We get that. Defilements are, uh, well, they're defiling. That's why we call them defilements. Uh, a clean garment and a dirty garment, when you rub them together, Father, it's the dirt that rubs off onto the clean. And that's, uh, that's the nature of it. So open our eyes to these things and make it very clear that we can make appropriate choices ourselves to, uh, to protect the flock. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.